So, and I'll just have to be honest with you, as I was looking at this, I thought, well, this, this kind of looks like an outline for maybe a book or an article or something like that. So maybe I'll pursue that down the road or, or whatever. Um, but, you know, it's, it's really been close to my heart. This whole thing is, this, this whole series has been very much on my heart. And, um, and so hopefully, uh, you know, we'll get some, some fruit from it in that regard. So that's just by way of introduction of that. And um, I want to get my notes here uh, situated. So this idea of recalibration, and you have to understand that, that when you get into a series, that sometimes you have to go back and you have to come back to the rhetoric. Of, I always set up my series with, with a, a sermon or two on the rhetoric. Why is this important? Why is it important that we know this, that we study this, that we be aware, that we embrace this, that we engage this, that we make it a part of Why is it important? That's the rhetoric, rhetoric part of any message. Uh, so it helps to make it hopefully relevant to uh, anyone who's listening. So why is it important to recalibrate our faith and what is recalibration? And to recalibrate means to adjust something back into compliance with an established and universal standard. And the standard for us is Christ-likeness. So when we recalibrate our faith, we are recalibrating ourselves back over into the image, to the person, to the work of Christ. He is the model. He is the standard by which we will be judged. He is the standard by which we have to comport the whole of our lives in that regard. And so uh, when we read, for example, uh, well, uh, when we read, for example, uh, from Romans 8, 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but to those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. This is a recalibration passage. If, you're, if our heart and our mind is on the things of the flesh, then we are out of sync. We are not in compliance with how God wants us to live. But if we live according to the Spirit, then we move back closer towards compliance. The standard becomes more real, more exacting, and, and better Paul also says in Ephesians 5, 1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. There is the compliance. There is, there is the, the calibration. We imitate God himself in how we live our life. 1 John 2, 6 says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So the standard is how Christ walked. In other words, how Christ lived. How we live ought to be the same way in terms. Now, you may think that this is all like an impossibility. That, that, that isn't, that's unrealistic. Um, and it is. I mean, if I'm honest, it is unrealistic to be uh, perfect like Christ. But that's the grace of God. What Christ wants to see is that we're moving in that direction faithfully. 
What Christ wants to know is that we're receptive to the Holy Spirit when he speaks to us and says, this is an issue in your life, maybe that you need to repent of. So uh, when Christ is a standard and we comport our lives to it, we will never do that perfectly. But degrees matter. And they matter greatly. There was um, a woman named Charlotte Elliott. And I want to read this story to you because here's a person who recalibrated her heart and her mind in a way that had quite an impact. Uh, This is the enduring legacy of an invalid named Charlotte Elliott who found a way to recalibrate and conform her life. So back in September, Back in September 22nd in 1871, an elderly British lady, 82 years young, was ushered into her heavenly reward. Earlier in her life, in 1835, her frustration at being an invalid left her feeling useless and questioning her very salvation. What she did next would echo through history As a young woman, Charlotte Elliott was not sure of her relationship with Christ, not sure of how to be saved, even though she had been raised a minister's daughter, and the probing question of a Swiss evangelist, are you at peace with God, would not leave her mind. When she saw the evangelist a few weeks later, she mentioned that she could not shake this question. But, she protested, What could she possibly bring to God? How could she calibrate her life in a way that was a blessing and a good thing before God? When he replied that she need not bring anything but herself, she gladly accepted. Some 12 years later, in 1835, crippled by illness and constant fatigue, She felt saddened by her inability to help a local church cause. Remembering her conversion, she took out her pen and paper and wrote a poem to encourage others who felt perhaps they too had nothing to give. This is what she wrote. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. And that thou biddest me to come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. How many of you know that song? You've heard it. Well, listen to the rest of the story. Her poem was published, and she was inundated with requests for it. She was gladdened to discover later that some copies were being sold to raise money for the very cause she felt helpless to assist. God has a sense of humor, doesn't he? After her death, thousands of letters were found in her home, written by people whose lives had been transformed by her words. Her song had been translated into hundreds of languages, published in more than 1,600 hymnals, and has reached billions around the world 
and continues to bring people to Christ even today. This crippled woman who didn't believe that she had anything to offer to God at all, and as a result of that, wanted to disqualify herself and keep herself outside of what God had in store for her. So she came to him with nothing, and he made her and gave her everything. Listen to the story. Sixty years later, on this date in 1931, a 31-year-old a man riding in a sidecar of his brother's motorcycle in England finally came to the end of his, of his internal struggle against whether Christ was indeed the Son of God. He finally knew in his soul that indeed Jesus was just who he said he was. He realized that God calls us to him just as we are. When C.S. Lewis stepped out of the sidecar, he was a new man, saved by grace. I'd like to know that I had some kind of influence over a luminary like C.S. Lewis. Probably, anyway. 99 years after Charlotte Elliott penned her words, and three years after Lewis's conversion, the 16-year-old son of a dairy farmer listened intently as he heard the message of salvation preached at a revival service in Charlotte, North Carolina when the song, Just As I Am, was sung at the end. Young Billy Graham went forward to accept Christ because of that song. 20 years later, Billy Graham had become a successful evangelist and was invited to speak at Cambridge University in England. His nervousness over the event nearly led him to cancel it, but he was introduced to a kind man named C.S. Lewis, who encouraged him to disregard the critics who had spoken out against him and to continue with the revival. Reverend Graham went on to speak to an overflow crowd of 2,000 each night at the revival. And when he returned to England in 1989, he addressed a crowd of over 80,000 at England's Wembley Stadium. As always, he closed the event with the same song that brought him to Christ, Just As I Am. Never think that you have nothing to bring to Jesus. That is exactly what he wants you to bring. Nothing. He wants you. Just you. As you are. He can take frustration like Charlotte Elliott's skepticism. I'm sorry, he can take frustration like Charlotte Elliott's skepticism like Lewis and nervousness like Billy Graham's and reach the world through you. Just as I am, though tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt, 
fightings and fears within and without. O Lamb of God, I come. So, when I encourage all of us to be imitators of God, to set a standard for us that helps us to recalibrate our life over into the image of Jesus Christ himself, that is a high standard. And we need that high standard. But it's not like we have to have everything put in order before we go to him. We just go to him as we are. And we just allow him to do his work in us. Remember, you've heard, this say, you've heard me say this many, many times. It's not our job to be successful. It's our job to be faithful. Charlotte Elliott was simply faithful. Who knew? <laughs> Who knew out of really kind of despondency and some discouragement, she went, she went to Christ in that. Who knew that she would pen those words that would play such an instrumental part in the lives of not just dozens or hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands or millions, but billions of people over the course of a century. Who knew? I don't know if you know this or not, but, well, anyway, I, I think that's like a, a side, uh, well, I was familiar with a, I was familiar with a, a, a ministry group called a Coalition for Christian Outreach. And there was a guy named Sam Shoemaker who owned a business, he was a Christian business owner. And his motto was to find a way to make the Pittsburgh area as famous for Jesus Christ as it was for steel. Now, any of you who know anything about the Coalition for Christian Outreach and the influence that that vision had on that organization where in over 250 universities, the CCU can find itself doing ministry with college students. But he was just a simple businessman. He wasn't well-lettered, he didn't have a great education, he was just a guy who wanted to avail himself to the work of Christ in his life. And what came from that were some of the most uh, influential men and women in the Pittsburgh region for 40, 50 years. John Guest, Reed Carpenter, Bob Long, Stu Bamick, uh, just, I mean, the, the list is endless, and, and, and how it affected people like me over the course of my life. This recalibration thing is important, not just for us individually, but for this church, that we have a clear idea and commitment to what God calls us to. I mean, I mean, it is possible 
that 150 years from now, some person would be able to, tra to trace their spiritual, their, their impact upon the world Christianly to something that you said or you did. The senior pastor of mine in Lancaster, Ohio, who had such an influence over my life, had a Sunday school teacher who told him that she thought that he was the kind of person that ought to go into ministry. And he pastored large churches and influenced many, many people over the years just because of how God spoke to her in that way, spoke to him in that way through her. So when we, when we recalibrate ourselves, then we have the ability, I think, to make more of an impact than we could ever hope or think or believe that we could. So again, that's, that's part of the rhetoric that I think is important to remind us about why we're talking about this subject and its implications and its importance for all of us. So just in case you're lost in this series, and I hope that you're not, but just in case, there are three practices for living out our faith optimally. This is my list. Some other people might add more, but this is my list. Repentance, guarding your heart, and constancy. Repentance. Let me ask you, and don't raise your hand, How many, since I've talked about repentance, how many of you have made repentance, the discipline, the daily discipline of repentance, more of a reality in your life since we've talked about it? That you are more intentional about meeting with God in the morning, in the evening, and you are repenting of things that you did or did not do. And then if you have done that, how has your life changed because of that? Do you sense a different kind of vibrancy in your faith because you were more honest with God about how you were grieving him with unconfessed sin in your life. Now I've spent five or six weeks on this whole thing. And I, and I don't know what the percentages are, but I'm saying that if I can spend five or six weeks on this series of which repentance is a primary theme and nothing has changed then you can see why I need to go back over this sometimes because I'm hopeful at least the next time something will change. Guarding our heart is number two. How many of us are guarding our heart more from the influences that would make us into something that is other than Christ-like? How many of us are guarding our hearts? 
to keep us from becoming something other than Christ-like. Because garbage in, garbage out. If we put garbage into our heart, we'll get garbage out of our heart. That's a slide further on there, Bree. I know I'm all over the place today. but uh, So above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. And then I just offer this, diagnostically speaking, what are our treasures? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. How many of us sat down and think, you know, I spend too much time on this thing. I value that thing too much, and it's a distraction, and it corrupts me. For where your treasure is, there your heart. Or how many of us say, that's a treasure, but honestly, if I'm honest, I just can't give it up right now. I know I should. I know it'd be better. But if I'm honest, I just love it too much. I can't give it up. That's progress. It's much better to be that honest than to live in denial of that particular thing, right? And then we spent a week or two on this idea of constancy. There are five essential disciplines of constancy, it seems to me. This is my list. Again, some other people might have theirs, but this is five essential disciplines of constancy. Constancy in our purpose, constancy in terms of exercising the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And by the way, we're not going to be able to get to that today, but I, I, I did a long series on the fruit of the Spirit. And again, I think that's another series that's worth putting in a folder and making available to people online because... It's so, it, it is such an important biblical discipline to embrace the fruits of the Spirit. Because when you embrace the fruit of the Spirit, you become Christ-like. That is the exchange. So if you wonder, how can I grow more like, to be more like Christ, then practice the fruits of the Spirit. Number three, the gifts of the Holy Spirit knowing your gifts. Number four, embracing the biblical virtues. And then uh, number five, um, practicing the spiritual disciplines. And so we'll, we'll get to those as we can. Now, this idea of constancy in our purpose, which is first one there, I've been spending the last week or two just on that. And I think there are six parts of that. And I, I, that's why I'm doing this outline, because I think it will be helpful for you to follow. But here are six general principles in constancy of purpose. And I talked about this last week. Constancy in giving glory to God in all that we do. There is a kind of euphoria that comes when you're in a situation and you have a whole host of choices where you could go this way or you could go that way. But then you go the right way. And you see in going the right way that somebody says something to you like that has to do with your faith or about God or about how you've encouraged them in that way. 
and you realize you had all these choices, but you made the right choice, and that God is glorified because of the right choice that you made. There is a kind of euphoria that comes with that, a kind of gladness, a kind of joy, giving glory to God. Constancy in terms of our belonging, that we understand that we, we belong to Christ, that in a very real sense, he owns us, and we are his, and we don't belong to anybody else. Now, there are other entities out there that would like us to belong to them, but we belong to him, and we have his protection. We have his guardianship. We have his resources, his tools. We have all those things at our disposal because we belong to him. It is a privilege to belong to God. It's a privilege. Constancy in the body of Christ, constancy in, call, in the calling of, in calling and of good works, constancy in a victory in spiritual warfare, and constancy in following Jesus and his kingdom. So um, I just want to go to number three of these because that's where I want to spend the balance of my time. And I want to just talk about this and then uh, I'll pick up number four next week. Constancy in our connection and exercising what part of the body you are. Do you know what part of the body you are? Do you know how you fit into this body here? what manner in which God wants to use you here? Are you aware of that? Do you know that intimately and well? Do you celebrate that in your life and in your faith? Do you understand that when you walk through those doors back there, there's a particular role that you play or are called to play as a person of Christ who belongs to him? And that's why unity in the body of Christ is so important. If you went out to the Beaver Valley Mall and you uh, approached the fountain in the middle of the mall, and you saw somebody sitting on the edge of the fountain, and you looked at the head of that person, and out of the, out of the head was coming the most beautiful words, just amazing things that he was saying. But below the head, the shoulders, the arms, the legs, the torso, the feet, it was just conflict that the hand was trying to do things that the hand wasn't designed to do, that the leg was kicking at the other leg, that there were spasms and contortions taking place throughout the whole body. It looked like the entire body below the head was at war with itself or out of sync. Would you hear and understand and trust anything that came out of that mouth of the head that was saying the most beautiful things? You would not. What do we think the world thinks when we can say the most beautiful words that Christ could ever speak, and yet they see a body that is out of sync, parts of the body that don't understand what their purpose is and how that body ought to function? 
Our words are not heard and they are not trusted when a body is in disunity, when a body spasms, when a body doesn't obey what the head is telling the body to do. That's how the world sees the church too many times. Does that help you? That's why when we come through those doors, that it's vitally important that everybody here find their niche, their place, and they say, this is, this is what I can bring. This is my function. We, we just, we're going to have election of officers next Sunday. And everybody that said yes, you said yes to something that you believed that you could do. And that you had something to bring to that particular office. To help what we do here go better. To create a more full picture of who Jesus is, not only to ourselves, but to the world outside beyond those doors. We cannot be that person out at the mall where we can say these beautiful words from the scriptures in the name of Jesus on the one hand, and then on the other, be a body that is out of sync, that is at war with itself, that contorts, where the different members don't understand or won't participate with the other body. We all hate it when one part of our body doesn't work. We need it when you can't move your hand or your arm or whatever to scratch your head or to feed your mouth or whatever because it won't cooperate. It can. It should. But it won't. Now, if you want a clearer picture of that, I'd encourage you to look at 1 Corinthians 12. Um beginning with verse 26. And the Apostle Paul gives a, a more complete picture of, of the function and how the body ought to work. But that constancy is vitally important. For all of the challenges that are coming our way in the world in which we live, and there are challenges coming. You only have to spend five or ten minutes watching the news, read the news or whatever, and you know that in many places of the world, they are on the cusp of a great conflagration that could impact us in significant ways, directly or indirectly. And the more this body functions as a body, the more we see what we bring to the table and offer that up so that we give a more complete picture of who Jesus is and so that we function more efficiently and better, the more all of us have a chance of being in the right place and being able to resist in the days of evil. 
So if that is something that we should repent from, let's begin today. There's so, we have at least five men in this church, six men. If you put all those men together, there isn't anything they can't do. There isn't anything they can't do. We have people who have great gifts financially. We have people here who have great gifts with their, uh, with their ability to be creative, artistic. We have people here who love hospitality to serve. We have so much of what the body needs here, but it needs to be tighter. It needs to work better. It has to be more whole. Will you commit to that today? So that in spirit, you're like this woman that I read about, Miss Elliot, who even with her limitations just came as she was. And her ability to write and to craft poetry, God took that she didn't know she had, and she impacted billions of lives because of it. Bring what you have to the Lord. Allow what you are to be enmeshed, combined with the whole of the body of Christ here. And let's see what God can do. Don't you want that? I want that. I want that. And I believe the Lord wants that as well.